Shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't mean maybe. Nine to five ain't taking me. Welcome to Nocturnal Journal tonight. Uh, next hour, we've got Lurie Bell live in the studio, and we're going to talk about some new J.J. Kale music, but we're not going to wait any longer to talk about our friend Pat Colander. We've got, I'd like to thank everybody for coming down tonight. Uh, Pat was on the show uh, 2017 to promote a couple of her books, and we have uh, in the studio former reader-editor Mike Linehan. We uh, have her best friend, award-winning Chicago journalist and attorney, Bonnie McGrath. Sister Marianne O'Quinn and her longtime, 59 years, I think you said the other day, high school friend, Marilyn Lentite-Joyce. Thank you all for coming in. Um, I mean, Pat Colander, I have here, on, I'm sure I'm missing something. Mom, sister, friend, wife, grandmother, daughter, writer, mentor, advocate, just a, a great friend. Tell anybody who's listening um, who doesn't know about Pat, just, just let's start with Pat 101, why, why she was so important. I think as a mentor and the way she made all of us feel important. Most recently, she's been working at Purdue teaching journalism, which turned out to be just a godsend of a job that she truly, truly enjoyed. And the students as well truly enjoyed communicating with her and getting her insight into journalism and just how to use words to convey her message. Uh, Pat passed away on January 21st of this year from complications of cancer. Uh, she was 66 years old. Man, I, I go back, whether at least to the 80s, when we were all hanging out a little bit. And then um, she was just always in and on my life as an editor, um, with, especially when she did the stuff at Shore and Lake Magazine. Talk about what Shore and Lake Magazine uh, was. was. Well, uh, Bonnie. Those, were two, those yeah. were two magazines that she started in harbor country you know in um around indiana and michigan the resort areas very successful magazines um one of the things that that was that always struck me about pat is she went from this incredible journalist to somebody that totally understood publishing the publishing business she she knew business and i always uh -huh. thought how how did she how did she know that because there's always uh, a demarcation between writing and the bottom line in the office and she she picked it up she seemed to just know it and she um, was able to start several publications in her career that uh, were very successful money-making um, and just very successful journalistically as well and I'm proud to say that I, I think I worked for all of them <laughs> yeah, yeah. she always um, having worked with her a lot um, and I compare this to some of the editors I worked with toward the end of, end, end of my career at the Sun Times. She was always open to all kinds of new ideas. She yes. never, it was not like, no, it was like, let's get this done. How can we make, she, she, she never rejected anything. True. That's so true. Yeah. She was uh, so vibrant, so uh, intellectual, so creative. She had everything. She just had, she just had everything going for her in every way. Marion and, uh, and uh, Marilyn, when did that spirit of adventure and discovery come into her life? When did you first start seeing that? I think in grade school or even 
uh, well, especially in high school when you're able to have a little more autonomy, but she used to organize a 4th of July parade when we were on tricycles, basically. And, and what neighborhood is this? Yeah, it was in on Kenwood, mm-hmm. right down, I think, in Avalon Manor, I believe that was, over there by Cottage Grove. And so we would just go around the block. You couldn't, you know, really cross a street at that age. And we all dressed up, and we had all the neighbors involved. It was a great time for Fourth of July. And I think that was one of her first organized protests, maybe we'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I see we've got to take a break. We're going to come back, and I want to talk about our days at the Reader, too, with Mike Linehan. So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal. That word's poetic. I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best instead of getting it off my chest to let it rest unexpressed. I hate parading my serenading as I probably miss a bar. But if this ditty is not too pretty, at least it'll tell you how great you are. You're the tops. You're the Coliseum. You're the tops. You're the Loop Museum. You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss. You're the Mendel Bonnet of Shakespeare. Welcome back. That's the late Buddy Charles. Uh... Acorn on Oak. I can't believe I pulled that out of my brain. Now, uh, somebody told me Pat was a big Buddy Charles fan. What was it like for all you guys uh, to work the streets with her? I mean, when she just went out. I know you, Bonnie, you wrote a great blog about her. About uh, You can plug that on Chicago Now, about the days of Ricardo's and O'Rourke's. But what was it like uh, with, with Pat connecting with people? You know, <clears throat> she um, was comfortable anywhere. Yeah. At, at, you know, at the Drake, listening to Buddy Charles. In the journalism, or the journalist bars, um, in the dives, in very elegant places, she understood people. She understood places. She was comfortable everywhere, and she liked everything. Um, and she really liked Buddy Charles. <laughs> she she was there a lot, yeah. a lot with her husbands, her boyfriends, her friends. You know, she went alone. I think sometimes, she she was a big big fan of Buddy Charles. Mike, how did um how did she come to you at the Reader? You know, it's so long ago, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't trust my memories, but um, she, I think our first interaction w- with her was when she brought us the story about Bobby Arnstein. I vaguely remember that maybe she had different ambitions for the story. Maybe she wanted to put it somewhere else. Maybe she started writing it for the Tribune and it got too big f- for, I don't know. But I, my feeling was that it was not written for us, but as happened a lot in those days, people came to us with the stuff they couldn't uh, put anywhere else. And I have a very vivid memory of uh, first reading that story. You know, we had a complicated relationship with people who worked for the dailies. You know, we thought we were smarter, we were young, we were full of ourselves, and you know, we defined what we did as being all the stuff that they didn't do. At the same time, you know, we had uh, uh, admiration for a lot of the people who worked there, especially younger ones. And uh, it it was a surprise to me uh, when Pat came in with this story. And I remember I used to share an office with Bob Roth, and I was sitting there reading it. And I said to him, I have never read anything like this 
every paragraph in this story has got a punch at the end of it. And it was uh, kind of a revelation uh, to me. And, uh, you know, only a few months after we published that story, then Pat came to the reader to write a story about us. Uh, and then some years later, uh, when she, after she left the Tribune, uh, Mike Miner tells a great story about uh, going over to Roth's office after he heard that uh, Pat was had, was leaving the Tribune. He came over from the Sun Times to tell Roth that he we ought to hire. Her. And uh, on his way into the office, Mike Tuey and Karen Connor were coming out. They had just gone over to tell Roth the same thing. Uh, and I think she was uh, the second feature writer we hired. Uh, and this was, a, this was a really important time for the reader. Um, we were just starting to you know, get a little traction. And uh, uh, we were newly able to actually spend money on a full-time uh, feature writer. And... Uh, so Pat joined us and had a big influence on the publication. And this, what what period was this roughly? This is, um, I'm gonna, I want to say it's late, very late seventies or early eighties, but I couldn't no, pin it down. It was earlier. Yeah. It was, it was well. Se it was seventy five was when she when she did the stories when she did the Bobby Arnstein story, but she was still at oh. the Tribune, like in seventy seven. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah. So you're ta you weren't talking about when she first came. You were talking about when she got hired as a staff writer. Yeah. When I oh, said yeah. 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 Okay, Ro. Um, we're gonna play. Uh, this is just a little minute segment of Pat when she was on our show in two oh one seven, June twenty fourth to be exact. I think we'll put the whole interview up on the on the on the website. But this is Pat talking about her entrance and her early interest in journalism. Well, I was a White Sox fan. I had I read the newspapers. I read the Chicago Daily News every day, and um, actually, Dave Condon, who wrote in the wake of the news, oh, was I was my girlfriend was his daughter, one of his daughters, and um, he used to get us into White Sox Park. Was that Barbara Condon? Susan. Okay. So Susan and I used to do that, and Dave Cannon eventually helped me get a job at the Chicago Tribune, which was my first real job. So that was cool. So I'd say that was influential with me, that real stories, nonfiction, kind of was uh, more exciting to me than fiction. And I used to like to write about courtroom drama and theater and the theater scene was really happening also in the 70s and 80s when I first you know was kind of on the scene in Chicago so that's Pat from 2017 um talk about and I, I kind of prompted you a little bit what was it like for all you guys in the world you lived in for women to explore journalism in, in at that period in the 70s and 80s well, I, I don't. I don't want to go overboard and say were you guys trailblazers, <laughs> but what was it like? And um, I became pregnant in the in the latter part of 1981, and I was working at the City News Bureau. I couldn't tell anybody because if I did, I'd be fired. And uh, I finally had to quit. You know, when I when I started, <laughs> it was very obvious I was I was pregnant. And um, a woman who came after me, same thing happened to her, and they had a big fight about it. 
um, and it you know hit the papers and everything that the, that the city news bureau was trying to get rid of. Of uh, her name was Katinka. I can't, can't remember her last name, but she married a big movie star and moved <laughs> went to Hollywood. Um, but but I, uh, that, I think that says I, it all. Yeah, <laughs> but I think too you have to remember that back back in the early seventies, basically what was open to a lot of women, a lot of us who went on to college became teachers or nurses. Mm -hmm. So for someone to become a journalist or go into journalism was really unusual, especially from the background that we that we came from. You know, we were both both of us were first generation, you know, college kids, and everybody was either a nurse or you were a teacher. So when Pat went into journalism we were like surprised because basically we were all teaching at that point or we were at hospitals so she was a trailblazer that's very that's very interesting did you have any uh, dust-ups with her mic i mean she that's what I, I want to get into oh, that no. she always spoke what was on her mind yeah and i want to but yeah well, <laughs> always no no uh we never had a disagreement about any story and uh um of course i'm put um yanking your chain <laughs> <laughs> But dust, I wouldn't say it, it uh, came to anything you'd, you'd call a dust-up. Uh, Pat, you know, Pat was, uh, uh, along with her talents and her um, abilities, she was also very curious, and she was always interested in learning. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she was not, you know, sh she considered our relationship as like I had things to teach her. Uh, and she always accepted criticism uh, in that way. It didn't, you know, she didn't take it personal. It didn't bother her to be corrected or criticized, uh, even though, you know, by most uh, ways of judging, she had more real journalism experience than I did. Um, but uh, so, no, we didn't, it, it was always very friendly. And, and, and snarky, but friendly. <laughs> in your, I thought this is such an interesting word that she chose. In your blog, mm -hmm. you talked about how she mentored you and told her you were disintegrating. Yeah. Wow. One day she called me. We were talking, and she said, "You're you're disintegrating, and you got to get out of your house, and you got to get you got to get something else." I was freelancing, and she told me to go down to the city news bureau, uh, which I where I had been. I put in an application, but they never looked at the applications. The way to get a job there was you had to be there when somebody quit. And yeah. lo and behold, I went down there that day, that she, the day she told me to, and um, Adley Stevenson IV was quitting. He had been a reporter, and he was going downstate for a television gig. And um, I got hired. But that's how it was done. And yeah. Pat knew it. I knew it, too. But I always thought, well, they'll call me. They'll read my application. But, And, and that was a... a a huge thing in my life to work there for a year. You know, all the great journalists in Chicago had worked there, yeah. except for Pat. She she never did, but she went right out of college to uh, the Chicago Tribune, which was really something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're gonna take a break. I'm gonna keep you for a little bit, maybe another ten minutes after the news. Is that okay? A couple more questions I want to get oh, out. Sure. So don't go away on our uh, little celebration of Pat Colander on WGN.
Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we're uh, paying tribute to uh, writer, author, friend, uh, Pat Colander. In the studio, real quickly, we got uh, former Chicago Reader editor Mike Lenahan, who worked with her, one of her best friends, and um, Chicago journalist uh, Bonnie McGrath, her sister Marianne O'Quinn, and her longtime high school friend. I like to say 59 years. <laughs> Grammar school. Yeah. Not that old. <laughs> yeah, it goes before high school. <laughs> Marilyn Lentai-Joyce. We played No Secrets because her brother Tom talked about when she came back from U of I. I mean, she, was, mm-hmm. she kind of borrowed that record, right? Do you know? Does anybody know that story? <laughs> yeah, but uh, she, she, she did. It, she, never returned it. Yeah, never returned it. Um, Talk about Pat's role. I mean, the, we were talking about some of the um, plays. She did plays in, in, in school and stuff, and then her, her role with religion, going in and out of religion in her life. I, we, now, I've known Pat since we were, seven year, we were seven years old, and we stayed friends for all these years. And um, as far as writing plays, she started writing plays when we were in fourth grade. We were nine years old, and she started uh, – she wanted to get out of religion class, basically. And so she pitched it to the nun to – can she start writing some plays on the lives of saints? So I always say that was her first entree into into journalism were these plays she wrote on the lives of saints. And we'd go to, to the Colander house and we'd uh, go in the basement and, we'd, and we would rehearse. And then we'd come back to school. We'd put the play on. And we probably did seven or eight of them a year. And then we also carried that through fifth grade. But in terms of, uh, of religion itself... Pat, Pat, when we were younger, uh, was extremely religious, and all through high school, uh, she would constantly go to mass. When we were in grammar school, uh, when during Lent, the forty days of Lent, you know, the nuns put this big chart up on the board, and you got a star every time you went to. Uh, to mass and Pat always had all the stars. She went because she truly believed. The rest of us went because you got a free donut and chocolate <laughs> milk if you, you know, if you went to mass and you got the star. Um, and then when we were juniors in high school, Pat's dad passed away, and Pat and I were we when we were called out of class and told of Pat's dad's passing. Um, um, the nuns wanted me to walk Pat home, and as we were passing St. Philip Neri Church, which was right next door to Aquinas, um, Pat said, I want to go into church and I want to pray for my dad. So she was extremely, extremely religious for a long, long time. And then after her dad died, she kind of got away from it, even though she did did have her marriage blessed by Father Shazadlo, who was our pastor from St. Albies, where we went to grammar school. And then um, I would say the last eight or nine years ago, she really got back into into the Catholic faith and going back to church, going back to Mass. She had some things going on, but she also went back and supported our parish, St. Albies, where we grew up. And that's where she started going back to church. And I think that's because that's where she felt the most comfortable. That's where her religious formation began, and that's where it was the strongest. So I think that at the end of her life, those last eight or nine years, I think that's where St. Albies made her feel um, feel closest to God again. Marion, um, I was reading some stuff on her. Uh, might have been in one of the magazines, Lake or Shore. Where, where, where are the family roots? From Iowa? I think she said some of the family our, comes from. Our our grandmas, our lineage is probably back in Iowa. But my uh, paternal gr- father, my paternal grandfather, was a Chicago police officer. He was Swedish, Colander, yeah. Swedish, and his wife was Irish. He married my mom, who was uh, Connors. Baldridge, which dates back to the American Revolution. There was actually a Baldridge that was a governor in Pennsylvania or someplace. So I think we're just a Heinz 57. I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't call us immigrants. We, we've been around. She actually had that 
gene thing done. I forgot which one. Oh, the gene, yeah. Yeah, she had that thing done and found out that, yep, indeed, we have a lot of Swedish uh, Norwegian in us, but mostly it's just hundreds of different angles in that little pie. There was a lot going on. So if you want to read more of her stuff, I know this is out. Mm-hmm. Because uh, she was on the show to promote this. Hugh Hefner's First Funeral and Other True Tales of Love and Death in Chicago. It came out at Eckhart's Press 2016, I believe. 2000. Anyway, I know it got the Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year Award in 2016. Mm-hmm. It's a compilation of stories, many of which were done for the reader. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a republication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that came out. Um, and the little bit of time we have left, um, I noticed, Mike, you posted a thing on Facebook today, and I just noticed before the show, Denise DeClue, one of her best friends, mm-hmm. who's not in Chicago, right? She, I, don't, I tried to get in touch with yeah, her. Yeah, but um, <laughs> she said, I mean, I, I wrote this down before we walked in here. There wasn't any competition. It was always you go, girl. And this is how I feel. I keep thinking she's still here. Mm-hmm. I mean, just talk about her as a force. And, I know. Uh, that's how we can, yeah. I, I keep thinking, Bonnie. I can't wait to tell Pat about about this <laughs> you're talking about her you know um it's that happens to me almost every day i want to tell her something mm-hmm. yeah it's it's hard to believe that she's still gone i talked to her a couple days before she passed away she sounded great and she had me you know run into the store to buy some stuff for her from when she got out of the hospital and um and i've shared this with marion you know some days i'm just sitting there in the morning and you just start thinking about her and you can't believe that she is gone she was a true force of nature she's probably one of the most intelligent women i've ever seen um and she was probably one of the most caring people and she had a way with her she could talk to anybody no matter what color what class what religion she just had a way with people and i have to agree that she also had an incredible uh love of learning and it wasn't just for journalism. Um, and as you know, as Bonnie pointed out, she could cross over into other genres. It was she could do the publication end of it. Then she goes and gets a master's and you know in computer um, tech, IT, yeah. IT, right? And then she goes on to teach at Purdue. But I'm still going to take classes at Purdue. And I'm thinking of getting a PhD at Loyola. And this is all, you know, when she's and sixty, sixty oh, yeah. plus yeah. years old. Her love of learning was she. Endless. She was all in on everything, you know. All I remember when she moved over always, to Gary slash Miller Beach. Right. Yeah. I, I went to a, a Gary Steelheads minor league basketball game, and there's Pat in the first row. You know, <laughs> Pat Colander in the first. I mean, she was not passive about joining yeah. stuff. And I moved to Westchester. I just sit in my house. But she, she was just, she, you know, that always she was just forward, mm-hmm. always, always forward. You saw it in her mic when you worked with. Her? Yeah, I mean, she, you know. One of the things that made her such a good journalist is she loved learning and she she was curious and and that's the first step for any uh, good piece of journalism. You know the thing I remember about her to me she uh, I'm not very uh, uh, advanced in the height department so a lot of people look tall to me but to me uh, the first word that comes to mind when I think of Pat is she was big. And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean yeah. grotesque. I don't mean that she was fat or anything. Uh, she was very, rather well proportioned, I'd say. But she just filled up a room. You sure. know, her yeah. voice was big. Her personality was big. Her hair, was, you know, her blonde hair was blonder than blonde. <laughs> Everything about her was just big. And she took on big stories, you know. Uh, in those days of the reader, you know, we tended to do the stories that the the big time publications wanted to avoid. That was, a, but you know, Pat wanted to do 
she's going to do the story of Bobby Arnstein and she's going to figure out who killed Helen Brock and she's, yeah. you know, all of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was just, the, so that's, what, what, that's how I remember. She was just big. Yeah. Okay, Bonnie, talk about how people can uh, read your tribute to her. Well, it, uh, my blog is called Mom, I Think I'm Poignant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at the moment, it's the second post down. You know, if you go to that that blog, second post down, um, it, it's there. But don't be modest. It was show. so well received. That shows mm -hmm. the po how important mm -hmm. Pat was. Mm -hmm. You got a lot yeah. of hits on that, right? Yeah, I really, I did. Um, and you know, the the funny thing is, um, every day I think of something else to put in. Yeah. So it's getting longer and longer, and I think I just have to get this in. So I keep adding to it, and uh, so you know, keep keep going there and reading it <laughs> because you'll see new things. <laughs> Well, thank you guys. We had to do this. Um, she was she was important to me when I when I took my suggested buyout at the Sun Times. She's one of the first people I talked to. I went I walked over and talked to her and stuff. And I just I wanted some advice on what to do. And um, you know we weren't super tight, but uh, I liked like what we said earlier in the segment. She always told you what she'd think. And I, I trusted mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. Yep. I trusted yeah. her judgment, mm -hmm. and um, she was just a great yeah. mentor she to had me. Very so. good judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Thank and uh, she'll live on. Yeah, okay, we'll be on. back with some J.J. Kale stuff after this on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. Anytime you can hear some new J.J. Kale music, it's, it's, it's a good day. So on the phone, we're going to talk about this. And on the phone, we have Christine. Are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing, Lakeland Dave? Doing okay. Christine Lakeland-Kale and uh, longtime manager Mike Kappas. Are you there, Mike? I'm here. Hi, Dave. Thanks, uh, thanks for hanging out. Uh, we ran a little long with that first segment. Um, so talk about these new songs, um, how you found them. Um, I, I know a little bit about John's, you know, he had this whole library when he would do a record, he would always have like some extra tracks. So talk about, talk about what you found. Well, first, I could say something first and seek to... Go ahead, Christine. Mike. Yeah. Over the years, uh, Kale would send me initially cassettes and uh, later on CDs of, of records, or of, of tracks. And, and so I had a good collection as well. Um, and I told him at one point, you've got two great CDs here, you know. And from that point, he used some of those. But um, I think when he went to make a record, he would focus on new for the most part and then maybe throw in something that seemed to fit that it was left over from previously. But it's not like he chose from a stack to make a record. Usually a new record was mainly new. But, uh, and then Christine had, I had gotten what John sent me, and then Christine had what was in the house and what was on tapes, and Christine could pick up on that, I guess. Yeah, go ahead, Christine. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Follow up what Mike said. 
I was just going to say there was uh, when you start discovering what all is here, what was he working on, and then trying to second guess, did he like this one well enough to consider that he might put it out someday? What if he was thinking of making a record? Trying to put yourself in, in his shoes and second guess. Hope you make good choices, you know. <laughs> uh, John, but one thing that was important about all that, I think, is that uh, all of the songs on the record were brought up to his typical level of production before he released something. It wasn't raw, and there was no overdubbing, there was no remixing. Everything's exactly as he left it. And the way he left these songs was really at his standard level of production before releasing. Yeah, yeah. So it's all good stuff. All well produced. John, really well produced. John passed away in July 2013 at age 74. Um, why? Why is the time right now for this? What was it like to look back? Like six years. Well, I'm not a person to live in the past or dwell in the past, but in in downsizing, you have to go through everything and make sure that you're not going to get rid of something that you shouldn't. And I realized, well, I have to go through all of John's bits and pieces and papers because. Um, he was always working in his workshop at home on his own equipment. And that was when I started finding things that some I had heard, some I knew about. And then I started finding a surprise here and there, which made me think, wow, I think his fans ought to hear this, you know. And it had been, uh, I believe Mike had included me, and it's been 10 years since his last record. And uh, it didn't seem like we'd been, you know, asking for people's attention too much or wear it out or welcome. So it was a good time to say, hey, remember this guy? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's timeless is, is, is really what it, what it is. It's, um, well, I know I'm biased, yeah. so I agree with you. <laughs> Talk about the My Baby, Blue, My Baby Blues track uh, cut at Bradley's Barn Studio in 77. Well, that particular song was the first song John and I cut in the studio after we met. Um, he cut his version, a demo, in 1980, and uh, it became an unused outtake and was sort of forgotten about. When I came across uh, the cut that's on this album, I realized he'd gone back and reworked it and revisited it and added to it and sang it again, and I thought, oh, he must have liked it enough to fool with it. And uh, and Mike was the uh, catalyst for me, including it, because it is the only song not written by Kale. Yeah, I'd, I'd had all this collection of, of songs from John, and I can't remember. There's just a few things I didn't have. I'm not sure if My Baby Blues was one of them, but as we were trying to decide which songs might be good for the record, I brought that one up, and, and John had sent me all this stuff, and he wouldn't. There was no detail on it to speak of. Just hear the hear the songs. So I didn't realize it was one that Kale had not written himself. So Christine was a little hesitant at first because the concept was to be, you know, all about Kale and not about anything written by anybody else. But uh, I've, you know, repeated a few times that I really like the record. She could choose as to whether or not she wanted to use it, but I, I liked the track. And, and then, you know, Christine had the story that went with it of their first time recording together and decided to go with it. At the beginning, we played uh, the title track, uh, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is Eric Clapton on that track? He I is think not he on is. anything on the record. Oh, wait. No, sorry? no, no. He, they opened up with Roll On. Is that from the... Yeah, right. Oh, Roll On. 
nine records. Yeah, you got disconnected for a minute. I thought you were talking about oh. the title track of this this well, record. Yeah, uh-huh. he's not on the new record. But the question for listeners um, who may be new to this is: talk about his, um, you know, affiliation with with Clapton. I know Clapton covered his songs, but how did how did that begin? How did they how did they first hook up? Actually, I I double checked, um, and it was you know there's different stories about how. Eric first heard the record, but Eric says that Delaney Bramlett, who was producing his first, Eric's first uh, solo record, had given him the song. And, uh, you know, he liked the song, he included it. I think Bobby Keys, who was on the record, called John once and said that Eric had cut his record. And John thought, yeah, well, sure, right. You know, or, or that, you know, it might be an outtake and not tell used the listeners, on the record. Tell the listeners what song you're talking about. After midnight. Yeah, right. okay. uh, sorry, and John was driving along one time and listening to a station that was, you know, mainly played bigger hits. And all of a sudden, he heard After Midnight, and he thought, "Wow, I'm going to go out and buy me a Chevrolet." <laughs> so not a Rolls Royce, not a Cadillac, but a Chevrolet, because John was pretty down to earth. Yeah. Um, and talk about his 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 guitar. I mean, he had he had such a. a and we got Larry Bell coming on after you, and we're going to talk about that. Larry Bell's a JJ Kale fan. Like I said, his, yeah. his music never goes away. But his the finesse and the style of his playing. Uh, talk about talk about John. Just a great great guitar player, which is I'm sure how he connected with Eric. Well, I will say that from a musician standpoint, I think the uh, the thing that's unique to John that is to um, a lot of artists is when they're so identifiable, his rhythm and his phrasing just was something that even if a hundred of us listened to him, we can't uh, execute what he did. We can't be him. And I think that's why musicians were such fans first, because you understand what it is to have something special. And uh, that's what you get every time you put on Kale stuff when people recognize it. I think that's um, the specialness about it. And you mentioned uh, Eric, and I think there's an interesting story there about them. They really didn't hang out or even be in touch with each other that much until the last few years. Um, But during Eric's first Crossroads event, he asked for Kale to be on it, and Kale definitely agreed. Kale felt he owed so much to Eric for the visibility that he gave to Kale's songwriting. But at any rate, at Crossroads, uh, Eric talked to Kale and said, I I come into the studio and I bring a couple J.J. Kale records and I tell my producers, this is the sound I want. And he said they could never get it. So it seems like the only way I'm going to get your sound is if you produce me. And so that was the, the seed of the Escondido, Road to Escondido record that the two of them did together. Right. And that record started as J.J. Kale producing Eric Clapton, which he was very uncertain about. He talked to me about it, and he was, he was thinking, what if nobody likes this? You know, what if I take him in a different direction nobody likes? He was a little worried about that. But he ended up agreeing to do it, and uh, they went through the process. And in the middle of the process, they realized it was more of a co-production, not really Kale guiding everything. But Kale played some guitar, and he did some singing on it. And the record was entirely finished, as was the intent of Kale producing Eric. And then Eric called Kale up and said, what if you added a few more guitar parts here and here and sang a little bit more here and here, and we can call it a duet record. And that's that's what happened. And 
Eric was so generous that he put J.J. Kale and Eric Clapton with Kale's name first on the album. Um, and, you know, very healthy share of the album. Uh, but it, And Eric was asked about that later on. And somebody said, did you plan that from the start? And he said, no, no, well, maybe. And, in fact, on that deal, and it only occurred to me later when I was dealing with Eric's manager about terms for uh, Kale producing the record, he said, what about we just wait and see what happens? And I wouldn't do that with any other artist, but, you know, Eric and his management were just extremely professional and generous, and so we, we did that. And, and Kale, at the same time, would have done it for free because he had so much respect for Eric. So it's, uh, maybe that was the plan from the beginning because they didn't want to make a contract in the front, but they made one in the back when we saw that it was a, a duet record. Okay, uh, very interesting. Sorry. I'm going to ask you guys. I, I got a few more questions, so can you hang on a little bit after the news? I, I, I want to sure. hit on a couple more songs off the record. So um, don't hey, go away. I'm, sure. a, I'm a huge fan. I also want to talk about uh, taking Peter Wolf to go see John in 1990. That was quite a show in Boston. So don't go away as we uh, <laughs> pay tribute to uh, JJ Kale on WGN. After midnight, we're going to let it all hang out. The great J.J. Kale, and on the phone we have Christine Lakeland Kale and uh, friend and longtime manager Mike Kappas. And talk about all the stuff that's coming out on Because Music. So there's going to be vinyl and uh, just all the, all the stuff of, of John's that people can, can discover or rediscover. Yeah, I think I'll let you take that one, Mike. Well, it's already out. Um, the record came out April 26th on CD and, and streaming, and it's also on vinyl. It's on two discs of vinyl. But simultaneous to that, because music we had worked with on previous records, and so there's five other albums of Kales that were released on vinyl at the same time. Um, many of those are imports because we weren't working with Because Music in America until this record, but they are available now, all the last five records of Kales as well on vinyl now. And is there a website, or how can people just find, find that through traditional... Uh... Manor. Well, you can go to jjkale.com, okay, and we've got everything there. They'll make it real easy, and then there's the standard Amazons and so on and so forth. But we've got all the information at jjkale.com, which includes videos. There's three videos out already on this record. And there's also, they just added a 10th episode asking different artists from around the world about Kale's influence on their music. So there's 10 different episodes of people talking about J.J. Kale, how much he meant to them, how much he influenced them, and then generally that individual uh, playing one of Kale's songs as an example as well. You could tell the, it was put together with, with uh, TLC. Uh, talk about the track um, Leaving in the Morning. Just a, just a beautiful, beautiful song that can have all my tomorrows. Talk about uh, how that was discovered and, and what you know about that song. Now, Leaving in the Morning, I believe, is off an earlier album. Oh, it's, I'm not sure which yeah, album. Not, not on an album, but it may have been an extra. But uh, I don't think we had it on an album previously. But, but oh, it had been around okay. a good while, like the rest of them had been around. And, uh, you know, that... Uh, 
we just collected the best, what we felt were the best that were all kale and were all ready to be released. Like I said, he, he had produced them all to a standard level of, that he would produce something to uh, for release, and they were all at that level. And there was no overdubbing done, uh, you know, no extra guests on it, no remixing, nothing. This is the way he left it, and it's, it, a lot of people are saying it's right up there with the best of any of his other albums. And it's done tremendously well, internationally especially. It entered number three on the sales charts in Switzerland, number nine in Germany, a lot of other. He was always much bigger in Europe, but he's this is actually breaking records for him. It's one of the best-selling records, or charting records at least, ever for him. Why do you suppose that is? Well, for one thing, there's, there's been some space. Yeah, you know, in yeah. between, and so there's anticipation of something new and a lot of talk about it. And I think nowadays, you know, when we had Facebook and everything when he was still around, but it was uh, not the impact that it's gotten in the last 10 years. And the record company did a fantastic job, too, really covering all angles, and they flew Christine over to Europe to go to some of the major capitals and, and do events on the week leading up to the release and so lots of great visibility but also you know facebook for instance we built in the meantime we wanted to keep kale's profile current and so we kept uh new items coming in for years all these years since he passed away and so there was a an active still an active fan base you know that was eager to hear something new. You talk about visibility. Um, I was I was prompting everybody with the 1990 interview we did out in Boston, but at that point in his career, he was very much into talking about being a recluse. I'm looking at some of my notes. He said he told me then, spent two years living in a 24-foot trailer near Anaheim, California. He said he didn't own a phone. He didn't do much. Um, if you don't own a phone in America, you don't do too much business. Then he said, uh, I started riding a bike. I'd get groceries on my bike, and that's hard to do in L.A. I like some rap. I'm a guitar player, so I like heavy metal. I love it. Eddie Van Halen. You can never stop trying to learn. Overall, I tried to slow it down and enjoy it a little bit. I bought me a house, and now I got into mowing the lawn every Saturday. I'm not working. <laughs> but Exactly. I will say John always spoke the truth, so that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, so talk, go ahead. Yeah, you talk about getting gigs and everything. So I started working with him in the time when he was still in the trailer, and it was a pretty unique situation. In the very beginning, he had another manager, and that uh, that guy, uh, you know, they separated soon after I started working with him, But and I was just his agent, but I would have to send a mailgram to General Delivery at the local post office that his name, Sheriff General Delivery, he didn't even have a P.O. box, and I'd have to hope that he would ride his bike over to the post office and see the thing and give me a call while the gig was still available, you know, before they <laughs> moved on to somebody else. And it got, uh, at one time, there was a an urgent, urgent situation. I had to get a hold of Kale, and he, he was... I didn't even know where the place was. I met him uh, at a Disneyland hotel restaurant one time when we had to meet. He'd ridden his bike over there, and he had sworn everybody to secrecy. Well, I don't know how many people knew, but Christine did where he lived, and I had an extremely urgent situation I had to get to him on. And uh, she gave up where he lived, and I sent a mailgram to this trailer park to J.J. Kale. And nobody in the trailer park knew who this J.J. Kale guy was. They knew about Charles Johnson, <laughs> who had this trailer over there with a Porsche next to it, but nobody knew. And Kale just happened to be walking through the 
trailer park and saw the mailgram on uh, on a picnic table and picked it up. Otherwise, we never would have connected. But because uh, nobody knew this JJ Kill, even though he was living among them all the time, he he really liked to keep a low profile. Believe me. Um, we only got. Uh, a few minutes. Go ahead, Christine. What were you going to say? I was just going to interject. That was in the days when we all still had a modicum of privacy, and privacy was very important to John, and he always said, once you lose privacy, you don't get it back. So I think that's why it was paramount at that time, and of course now there pretty much isn't any privacy for anything for anybody, but this was a different time, so he wasn't totally in the wrong. (laughs) Well, this is wonderful that all this stuff is out there. So um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm inviting you guys to, if you want to hang around, listen to Lurie Bell. I know, Mike, we've got some things you want to talk about with Lurie. So um, thank you so much uh, to bring J.J. Kale's music back out again. And we're going to take a break and have some live music in the studio with Mr. Lurie Bell. Thank you. Great. And now we are going to swing over to the All-State Skyline studio. Mike, you still on the phone? Mike Kappas and Christine, I think, is still on. And we've got Lurie Bell. Lurie, are you there? Yes, sir. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. Okay, thanks for joining us tonight. And uh, I want to make sure we've got everybody in one place. I don't know if Mike, I don't know if Mike Kappas can hear us. I see Mike went away. Well, Amberly, are you there? Amberly Stokes? Here. I am here. Thank you for having us. Okay, I'm going to turn up your, your volume. I can hear Lurie fine. I can't hear Amberly that good. Okay, I, I see you, Amberly. Try it again. Hey. Okay, that's hey, a lot better. here I okay, am. Okay, that's a lot better. So we're talking J.J. Kale, and then when we were setting this up, uh, Amberly, you guys said you were coming back from the Blues Awards in Memphis. And yes, that's right. We listened to quite a bit of uh, blues music, and you know, J.J. Kale was definitely amongst some of the great music we we got to listen to on the way back and on the way there, but specifically on the way back. So when when you called and. Um, said you were doing the show i mean that definitely came to mind uh lurie is actually doing a jj kale song i got the same old blues on his next record coincidentally did you know that you guys mike and christine i know i did not know that that's great that's great i didn't know that but that song was covered by captain beefheart and freddie king yes freddie king um we're i'm a huge huge freddie king fan um I'm sure Lurie, Lurie is, I, I know he's probably a bigger Freddie King fan than me. He's probably got a lot more years loving Freddie than I do, but, um, you know, we're looking forward to, uh, to doing that one. Lurie, what do you, what do you, what do you like about J.J. Kale? Well, I like his style, you know, he's, 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 he's kind of traditional and I like traditional music, you know? He's, a, he's, 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 he's got a certain sound that, you know, catches my ear. And the guitar playing. Yes, sir. A lot of, a lot of finesse, a lot of style in the guitar playing. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, um, Mike, we were talking about some of the stuff, and I'm going to try to tie all this together. One reason I, I saw this stuff on Facebook about the new teeth for Lurie. You, you want to talk about that, Amberly? And then we'll go into the heart fund with Mike. I'm going to try to t- tie all these points together. But, uh, Amberly, talk about when you took over managing um, Lurie and, and what's happened with his career since you took over. Well, I've always, from the, I've worked at Rosa's for 10 years right. now. And, um, I mean, I remember the night I met Lurie 10 years ago or so, somewhere around there. Um, 
I just, I remember the first song that he sang, like the first note that came out of his mouth, I was just floored. I could not believe what I was hearing. Um, I mean, it, he's just, he's amazing. He's my hero. So uh, when, I don't know, we got together a couple months ago. My son was in an accident in August and I hadn't seen Lurie a lot. Um, and he played Roses in February, and we just kind of, you know, uh, had a talk, and it, I needed a job, and he had a job for me, so we kind of went with it, and it seems like it's going well. Um, I have experience with Heart Fund, um, several experiences where they've helped out some of the guys at Roses. Um, before I even came to Roses, I was... Um, involved with a guy that got really really sick and um they kind of came to his rescue uh you know musicians go through a lot not having access to good medical care and the people at heart fund are literally lifesavers so uh you know lurie needed just a little bit of help and you know i made some phone calls and uh, we made it happen. Well, Lurie, and then I'll go to Mike here in a minute, but Lurie, when I saw that picture, you smiling with those new teeth, I go, I got to bring you on the show, even though this is just radio. I mean, it was great. It was, ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It looked really, really, and that, you know, how did that feel? I mean, it just, it, 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 those pictures were just so fantastic. Oh, I, I mean, you know, it, it's good to, to be photographed and, and, and you like what you have, uh, uh, what the photographer have photographed, you know, so I kind of, you know, I kind of like it was the right moment, and I said, "Yeah, you know, I got to, I got to let this happen." You know what I mean? Job well done. It's a job yeah, well done. Thank you. And My, how about that Optimo hat? Yeah, yeah, Graham. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Graham. <laughs> Graham's great. Uh, Mike, talk about the Heart Fund Handy Artist Relief Trust. Well, um, there, there was a Rhythm and Blues Foundation, which is now no longer active, but. At, uh, years ago, they had a wonderful program. They helped out rhythm and blues artists. And uh, they also uh, would help those in need. They would give cash assistance to and, and referral assistance, I think, to people with uh, health problems, funerals, uh, unable to pay their rent, things of that nature. And I just thought uh, the Blues Foundation should have something like this. So I stole the idea and shared it with uh, the Blues Foundation, and they were definitely open to it. And uh, I put up the initial fund money to to get it going. Then I also did uh, coordinated tours of Handy All-Stars. The Blues Music Awards were called WC Handies at that time. So I put together tours packaging people that had won these WC Handy Awards. Little Milton, Charlie Musselwhite, Johnny Johnson, uh, a number of other people, Joe Lewis Walker, Duke Robillard, John Hammond, all of these different people revolving different packages. And so I, you know, set this up for the Blues Foundation, but I was not active in, in running it. And just in recent years especially, Jan, this is 20 years right now, 20 years since it started, and uh, in about the last seven years, Janice Johnson, a uh, doctor in Arizona, has really picked up the ball and run this incredibly well, working with music cares to get custom-fit earplugs for people, checking people for their blood pressure, doing blood tests, that, you know, find out about people with diabetes they were not aware of, prostate cancer situations they're not aware of, all these different things. 
So she's done a fantastic job. I was actually with her. I was at the Blues Music Awards, and we spent some time together. And we were walking into the awards and saw Larry, and she mentioned that she had just helped out. And then, uh, by the way, I should say I love the performance, too, that Larry did really great so, uh, at the Blues Music Awards. For uh, both Amberly and Mike, did you have any um, contact information, how people can find out, how listeners or musicians listening can find out more about the Heart Fund? You can go to the Blues Foundation, blues.org. Or if you've got something more specific to your fingertips, Amberly, you can share that. Um, I don't. And uh, I just want to say we got to see Janice at the BMAs as well in Memphis, and she is a fantastic lady. Um, I've worked with her multiple times now, and I just I can't say enough good things about her. Uh, Lurie, she is great. Lurie, um, in the world you've traveled in, and, and, and we're going to get into your own history after the news here, but um, how much are some of these services that they're talking about needed from uh, your, your compatriots and your peers? I mean, diabetes, eyesight, uh, prostate cancer. Uh, do you guys ever talk about that? I mean, how, how, much, is, how much is this needed, what, what we're talking about right now? Well, I mean, uh, but I've been uh, uh, fighting sugar diabetes for a little, uh, almost 15 years now, you know. And uh, I'm diagnosed with, uh, uh, um, I'm, I'm type 2 diabetic. And uh, so far, you know, I've seen some, some great physicians and doctors, and, and they have said I'm doing real good these days, you know, with my sugar nowadays. And, uh, you know, um, Right now, you know, I, uh, it's a lot of that going around. A lot of people I know have, have, are, have sugar diabetes now, you know. And my doctors are good doctors, and they say I'm doing really good with, with, with dealing with that nowadays, you know. And uh, I've been blessed, and I always pray for people that, that have the same diagnosis as I have when it comes down to sugar diabetes. And my father... Uh, well, had 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 sugar diabetes, and I guess it runs in my family some kind of way. So that's why I have it. But you know, so far, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, uh, I'm doing pretty good. I feel great, and uh, I make sure that I do what I have to do. And when I'm prescribed medication, take it, you know, like I'm supposed to. And so far, it's under control. You look great. Do you hear that much? We're going to have to take a break here for the news in a minute. But, uh, Amberly, do you hear much of that at Roses and stuff? I mean, t people talking about these issues? You know, we can hardly hear you in here. I, I don't know if we can turn you up in, in here or not. Um, do I hear a lot about uh, musicians in need, you said, at yeah, Roses? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I've raised um, the funds for multiple funerals um, since I've been at Roses when Eric Guitar Davis passed away. Uh, when he was murdered, I don't know, gosh, six years ago now, um, I raised the money for his funeral, and uh, Heart was certainly involved, Music Cares was involved. Um, I kind of learned how just because, because of people that I personally knew and cared about and loved, these guys are going through these things and a lot of, um, you know, just challenges and this country is just not set up for people that 
you know, don't have traditional jobs to have health insurance and life insurance, sometimes the income just isn't there for these guys to have that. So, yeah, I do. I have encountered that a lot. And um, again, you know, funds like these are just literal lifesavers for, for a lot of these um, artists. Okay, we're going to take a break for the news, and then we are going to come out with that live music we've been promising with uh, Larry Bell and Dan Corelli on guitar, and we'll also have uh, some more comments from Amberly Stokes. So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Welcome back, and I'm going to say, like, without further ado, you there, Larry Bell? Yes, sir. And Dan Corelli on guitar. You there, Dan? Okay, tell us what you got for us. Tell us the song you're going to play here. Well, I'm going to do this song uh, that I, I admired and learned from uh, a man who, who I called my grandfather. Uh, he was a he was an old piano player to play traditional music, and I loved it, this song that he made. Uh, uh, I heard, and, and, and I kind of liked it, and it stayed with me. It's it's uh, the man. This man was was named Mr. Charles C. West. He did a song called "Call Me on the Phone Sometimes," and this I'm gonna try to. And me and Dad gonna 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 try to do it for you. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Thank you. 
You know, I just want to uh, dump all my questions and just have you play the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Man, that's great. It's a source, man. It's just like, uh, thank you so much for coming down, Larry Bell and Dan Carlelli. Talk about, uh, you've got a slew of, of, of cool gigs coming up. Um, what all do I have here? I have uh, Buddy Guys Legends coming up. Uh-huh. What date is that? May 28th? Oh, I would have to look. He's, he's working almost every single day in June. Yeah. So we, you can uh, see all of his dates at Lurie.com. May 30th at Smoke Daddy Wrigleyville. Wrigleyville there? Yes. Lurie, are you a Cubs fan or a Sox fan? I'm a Cubs fan <laughs> and a Sox fan. <laughs> I love baseball, but yeah. period. <laughs> and you're doing Blues Fest on June 8th? Uh, yes. Yes, sir. And man, he's been on the show. Dan Long, one of Dan Long and I's favorite. Little Steven, you're opening for him? Yes, that is at New York State Blues Fest uh, next month. Wow, wow! It's it's so great that you're 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 being discovered. I mean, people need to know. Uh, tell listeners, somebody driving around tonight uh, outside of Chicago, talk about just what's so great about you, Larry. Is you grew up with this. I mean, you played with Willie Dixon as a teen. I know you played with Coco Taylor. Talk about the lessons you learned from all these greats. Well, I tell you, you know. Uh, I started playing guitar as a, as a youngster. I was uh, blessed and and, 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 and and surrounded by musicians that I liked it, you know, because my, my father introduced me to all these blues, uh, traditional cats uh, from the South. The know, great Carrie Bell. Carrie? Carrie yeah. Bell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From, um, I mean, musicians like uh, uh, people... Uh, that uh, from the South, from Mississippi, and places like that, and 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 of course, my dad also was from Mississippi. And when I and, and when I when I when I saw all these blues blues greats and musicians, I heard them. You know, it kind of caught my ear, and I caught and I found myself picking up a guitar that my dad had around around his house, and and the next thing I know, I was playing the blues. You know, like 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 all these old timers, you know, and I and, and, and I and I kind of like taught myself how to play a twelve bar blues, and 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 before I know that, I developed my own sound. That's what I'm saying. I was telling Amberly. I mean, like you have you do have your own sound. It's so distinct. It's a full sound. You have these round tones. Talk about what it's like to venture out and be your own man. Yeah. Well. Uh, you know, when 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 I when I when I decided and and found out that I could uh, uh, create my own style, you know, I said to myself, you know, I said, I'm gonna make this my living, <laughs> and, and so far it has been taking care of me, and uh, uh, and of course it has been paying the bills, you know, you know, and I keep a roof over my head, and I have. Uh, uh, guitars now, you know, that I own and records and blues records. So, you know, um, uh, the essentials. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That's important. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and I, would I, I, I would like to say, sir, you know, it, it, it has basically taken me around the world. You sure. know, I've seen uh, different c cultures and, 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 and uh, I've been to. Uh, 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 countries, you know, that uh, people that that's crazy about blues, about especially Chicago. Chicago blues. blues. Yeah. 
What did you learn about uh, leading a band and organizing a band? I mean, uh, I mean, Willie, you might have played with Willie Dixon, I think, as a, as a kid, as a teenager, but just being around these bands, what did that, what did that do for you in, in uh, creating your own bands? Well, uh, 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 being able to be exposed with, with people like Willie Dixon and the Chicago Blues All-Stars and knowing all of his band members and everything, it taught me how to be a leader right. in the blues world. You know, and and, uh, and you know, I found myself. You know, I you know, I I got my own unit now. I got a four-piece rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, and myself. You know, and uh, I like the sound that I'm getting these days because you know, I'm I'm, I'm more of uh, of I would say myself being myself with 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 with, with the sound that I'm getting through the blues that I hear these days. For both you guys, uh, Amberly, what can you say about uh, the future? What what future projects are coming up? Uh, any new records? Yeah, well, we are flying to Los Angeles uh, in June, and he's preparing to do a, a new record. We're really excited because Steve Ferroni is going to be coming in and playing some drums on that. We have some other special guests that we are super excited about. So... Um, you know, we we really can't. I, the sky's the limit as far as I'm concerned. He's got an Optimo hat. He's got a new guitar. Hmm. I don't. You know, he's got a, a manager that really wants to see him be on top. So I, you know, I I don't really know what's going to stop us at this point. And you still got to play City News Cafe. I know those guys there, and uh, I think it's great that you you. I know you've played there a lot late yeah. uh, in recent years. So mm -hmm. that's great. We're going to take a break. we got to get another song in. So uh, don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. You know, back in the day, I used to stay over at the Shack Up Inn. I think that's what those guys are called, down by Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I'd get up in the morning, you know, and I'd hear a gospel radio on AM radio. It just sounded so great. I think that's what's so great about hearing this music on, on AM tonight. People uh, all over the, the country can hear this stuff. So I'm going to shut up. And just want you to play us off the show. So what do you got for us, Lurie? I want to thank Ro Coleman for uh, the production, Dan Long for helping out with the engineering. So set up what you got for us for the rest of the show. I got a song I'm going to do by Muddy Waters. Uh, uh, Honeybee, the name of this song, I, I, I used to listen to uh, uh, when I was a youngster. And I always admired this song. And... I like to do it for you all. It's it's, uh, uh, it's old traditional blues recording by uh, who was considered the king of the blues in Chicago years ago, called Honeybee. Okay, Larry Bell and Dan Carlali.
country is just not set up for people that you know don't have traditional jobs to have health insurance and life insurance sometimes the income just isn't there for these guys to have that so yeah i do i have encountered that a lot and um again you know funds like these are just literal lifesavers for for a lot of these um artists 
Okay, we're going to take a break for the news, and then we are going to come out with that live music we've been promising with uh, Larry Bell and Dan Corelli on guitar, and we'll also have uh, some more comments from Amberly Stokes. So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Welcome back, and I'm going to say, like, without further ado, you there, Larry Bell? Yes, sir. And Dan Corelli on guitar. You there, Dan? Okay, tell us what you got for us. Tell us the song you're going to play here. Well, I'm going to do this song uh, that I, I admired and learned from uh, a man who, who I called my grandfather. Uh, he, was a, he was an old piano player to play traditional music, and I loved it, this song that he made. Uh, uh, I heard, and, and, and I kind of liked it, and it stayed with me. It's it's uh the man this man was was named Mr. Charles C. West. He did a song called Call Me on the Phone Sometimes. And this I'm gonna try to and me and Dan gonna 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 try to do it for you. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Begging you just not to die. 
You know, I just want to uh, dump all my questions and just have you play the rest of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Man, that's great. It's a source, man. It's just like, uh, thank you so much for coming down, Lurie Bell and Dan Carlelli. Talk about, uh, you've got a slew of of, of cool gigs coming up. Um, What all do I have here? I have uh, Buddy Guys Legends coming up. Uh Uh-huh. What date is that? May 28th? Oh, I would have to look. He's, He's working almost every single day in June. Yeah. So we, you can uh, see all of his dates at Lurie.com. May 30th at Smoke Daddy Wrigleyville. Wrigleyville there? Yes. Lurie, are you a Cubs fan or a Sox fan? I'm a Cubs fan <laughs> and a Sox fan. <laughs> I love baseball, yeah. period. <laughs> and you're doing Blues Fest on June 8th? Uh, yes. Yes, sir. And man, he's been on the show. Dan Long, one of Dan Long and I's favorite. Little Steven, you're opening for him? Yes, that is at New York State Blues Fest uh, next month. Wow, wow! It's it's so great that you're 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 being discovered. I mean, people need to know. Uh, tell listeners, somebody driving around tonight uh, outside of Chicago, talk about just what's so great about you, Larry. Is you grew up with this. I mean, you played with Willie Dixon as a teen. I know you played with Coco Taylor. Talk about the lessons you learned from all these greats. Well, I tell you, you know. Uh, I started playing guitar as a, as a youngster. I was uh, blessed and and, and 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 surrounded by musicians that I liked it, you know, because my my father introduced me to all these blues uh, traditional cats uh, from the South. The know, great Carrie Bell, Carrie yeah. Carrie yeah. Bell, yeah. from um, I mean musicians like uh, uh, people. Uh, that uh, from the South, from Mississippi, and places like that, and 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 of course, my dad also was from Mississippi. And when I and, and when I when I when I saw all these blues blues greats and musicians, I heard them. You know, it kind of caught my ear, and I caught and I found myself picking up a guitar that my dad had around around his house, and and the next thing I know, I was playing the blues. You know, like 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 all these old timers, you know, and I and, and, and I and I kind of like taught myself how to play a twelve bar blues, and and, and before I know that, I developed my own sound. That's what I'm saying. I was telling Amberly. I mean, like you have, you do have your own sound. It's so distinct. It's a full sound. You have these round tones. Talk about what it's like to venture out and be your own man. Yeah. Well. Uh, you know, when 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 I when I when I decided and and found out that I could uh, uh, create my own style, you know, I said to myself, you know, I said, I'm gonna make this my living, <laughs> and, and and so far it, it has been taking care of me, and uh, 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 and of course it, it has been paying the bills, you know, you know, and I keep a roof over my head, and I have. Uh, uh, guitars now, you know, that I own and records and blues records. So, you know, um, uh, the essentials. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That's important. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and 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 I would like I, I would like to say, sir, you know, it, it, it has basically taken me around the world. You sure. know, I've seen uh, different c- cultures and 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 uh, I've been to. Uh, 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 countries, you know, that uh, people that that's crazy about blues, about especially Chicago. Chicago blues. blues. Yeah. 
What did you learn about uh, leading a band and organizing a band? I mean, uh, I mean, Willie, you might have played with Willie Dixon, I think, as a, as a kid, as a teenager, but just being around these bands, what did that, what did that do for you in, in uh, creating your own bands? Well, uh, 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 being able to be exposed with, with people like Willie Dixon and the Chicago Blues All-Stars and knowing all of his band members and everything, it taught me how to be a leader right. in the blues world. You know, and and, uh, and you know, I found myself. You know, I you know, I I got my own unit now. I got a four-piece rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, and myself. You know, and uh, I like the sound that I'm getting these days because you know, I'm I'm, I'm more of uh, of I would say myself being myself with 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 with, with the sound that I'm getting through the blues that I hear these days. For both you guys, uh, Amberly, what can you say about uh, the future? What what future projects are coming up? Uh, any new records? Yeah, well, we are flying to Los Angeles uh, in June, and he's preparing to do a, a new record. We're really excited because Steve Ferroni is going to be coming in and playing some drums on that. We have some other special guests that we are super excited about. So... Um, you know, we we really can't. I, the sky's the limit as far as I'm concerned. He's got an Optimo hat. He's got a new guitar. Hmm. I don't. You know, he's got a, a manager that really wants to see him be on top. So I, you know, I, I don't really know what's going to stop us at this point. And you still got to play City News Cafe. I know those guys there, and uh, I think it's great that you you. I know you've played there a lot late yeah. uh, in recent years. So uh -huh. that's great. We're going to take a break. we got to get another song in. So uh, don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. You know, back in the day, I used to stay over at the Shack Up Inn. I think that's what those guys are called, down by Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I'd get up in the morning, you know, and I'd hear a gospel radio on AM radio. It just sounded so great. I think that's what's so great about hearing this music on, on AM tonight. People uh, all over the, the country can hear this stuff. So I'm going to shut up. And just want you to play us off the show. So what do you got for us, Lurie? I want to thank Ro Coleman for uh, the production, Dan Long for helping out with the engineering. So set up what you got for us for the rest of the show. I got a song I'm going to do by Muddy Waters. Uh, uh, Honeybee, the name of this song I, I, I used to listen to uh, uh, when I was a youngster. And I always admired this song. And... I like to do it for you all. It's it's, uh, uh, it's old traditional blues recording by uh, who was considered the king of the blues in Chicago years ago, called Honeybee. Okay, Larry Bell and Dan Carlali. Honey be 